If you have your Bibles, grab them, open them up to Luke. We're going to be looking at one of Jesus's parables, perhaps his most famous parable. When I grade undergrad students, it's always common in that first page to say, Aristotle was the most important philosopher that ever existed or whatever, right? So I don't want to overstate our case, but we're looking at the prodigal son. And I don't know, but if you ranked Jesus's parables or the stories that Jesus tells, it would definitely be up there, maybe, maybe the most famous story ever told in the history of the Western world, potentially. We think of the story as the prodigal son. That's the name that we kind of inherited. It's actually what my ESV calls it, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, the more that I've looked at this passage, the more I realize that there's two lost sons in the passage, the older and the younger. Um, and actually the flow of the passage is really pushing towards the second son in the story, which is the older son. But they're both lost. My daughter, I have a 17-year-old daughter, her name is Stella. Um, she uh, really struggled to learn how to read, and then later on we realized it was because she's highly dyslexic. I have a little bit of it. She's got a lot of it. We think he got it from her uh, grandfather on my wife's side. And so when she was like 8 or 9 or 10, we were doing all kinds of tests trying to help her with this. And one of the tests was a just a simple vocabulary test, opposites, right? So um, the, the person who was performing the test would say, hot. And there was a right answer, she should say cold, right? Up, down. And I was with her at this particular test. My wife wasn't. And they asked her this question. They said, lost. And, of course, the right answer, we all know, is supposed to be found. One of the things a dyslexic brain does is they kind of finds connections to things that you wouldn't think would connect. And she, with confidence, said that the opposite to lost was not found, but was safe. And I remember thinking, I'm going to just give her that one. I think that's actually the better answer, right? It's like for an eight-year-old child, the opposite of lost is safe. Instead of being in danger and instead of being alone and by yourself and all of the emotional fears that come with that, that it's to be safe. And that's the thing we're going to see in this story is that while there are two lost sons in the story, by the end of the story, only one is safe. And the older son, the self-righteous son, he's still lost. He's still not safe. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to read the entire passage. It's a long passage, but I'm not going to do any better than Jesus anyway as I tell the story. So we might as well hear it as good as it gets. And then we're just going to stop and pause and, and pull some things out of it. Um, and I'm going to read it in two separate sections. We're going to read the younger son first, and then we'll pause and we'll make some commentary and then we'll read the older son. So either out of your bulletin or from your scriptures, we're going to start in verse 11 of Luke 15. Uh, before I open and we pray God's word, let's just ask for ourselves. Father, Son, we need your help. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we need your help. Uh, we need your mercy. We need you to open our eyes uh, to the truth uh, and whatever you have for us today. Give me clarity of thought uh, give us ears to hear what you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and he took a journey into a far country. 
And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this. My son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. This is the perhaps the more famous son from the story, at least the way and maybe you guys haven't heard it preached or heard it read or my mind has always gone to this son. He's the younger son. And his rebelliousness is very clear. The story starts off with the rebelliousness of this son. He decides, I want my money and I want it now. And what he says to the father, we can feel the heartache of that, but essentially what he's telling his father is, Dad, it would be better for me if you were dead. And I don't just mean it like someone throwing a tantrum. Literally, my life would be better if I could just go ahead and get my stuff now. I'm going to get some stuff from you when you die. Can we just go ahead and accelerate the process? And I want the shortcut. I want it now. And my life would be better if you were not around. There's rebelliousness. We see the rebelliousness when the father does this. We see the rebelliousness in that what the son He didn't want that to go be wise and be a good steward and start a business, right? He immediately left with this money into reckless living. In this day and age, it's very likely, they think, commentators, that the older son would have received two-thirds of the inheritance and the younger son would have received maybe even less than one-third, depending on if there's other siblings. Even daughters would have gotten some share of that. But in this part of the world, so the younger son's not going to get as much as the older son anyway, but he wants it and he wants it now and he wants his father to be removed from the equation entirely. It's selfish. It's self-gratifying lust of the flesh the older brother later to the father even gives us more clarity of what this reckless living looks like because the older brother's like he wasted his money on prostitutes so it's not just recklessness it's sinful rebelliousness it's what the younger son headed off for immorality and then the story goes that the son In the midst of his reckless, rebellious living, a famine hits. Now, it's actually good to pause really quickly because this is a story told by Jesus. One of the commentators that really helped me 
with this a lot. And this is parables at times. They're, they're not really tricky, but you can, we can sometimes get too caught up on the details of the parables. For example, there's already a lot of questions we could ask. Like, wait, if this father was so wise and so good, why did he give this rebellious son the inheritance? Why didn't he just say, no, son, I won't give it to you? And the answer is always very easy. The answer is, well, the father gave the money to the son because that's how Jesus told the story. Because the father's not a real person and the son's not a real person. These are just characters created by Jesus to tell the story. And I think that helps us sort of like keep our mind keen on, okay, the details that Jesus tells us, that's the way the story exists. It's actually quite helpful to say, okay, I don't have to place psychology on what was going on internally in each of these characters because if anything psychologically that was important, Jesus would have had to have told us that because that's the only psychological states that exist in these people. (laughs) The stuff that Jesus tells us because they're fictional characters created to tell a story. Now, that being said, a lot of times when you see a passage like this taught or preached, we can, there's a temptation, in my opinion at least, to go do so much sort of cultural backgrounds that, that we're just sort of like reaching for every single little thing. Oh, and this means this, and this points to this. And I think we can over-air on that side. But I do think there's some really important pieces that the original audience listening to Jesus told the story would have picked up on that we miss. Does that make sense? In other words, I don't think every single bit of the... I don't think we have to like do a PhD in Jewish cultural studies to understand the story. The story is for us, and we have the Spirit. But there are some parts that the better we understand the culture, we can really pick up on some real uh, key moments it, that the original audience, meaning the audience listening to Jesus tell the story, or the original audience, meaning the audience that was reading Luke's writings, would have immediately picked up on that we just miss because culturally we don't understand everything that's going on. So, one of those kinds of things is this son, right? This rebellious son, he's reckless. He's squandering his money, and then on top of that, let's imagine he was like, I'm going I'm to go party for a year, and then I'm going to start being wise. Then famine hits, right? Like an economic downturn. All of a sudden, maybe even if he had tried to be only 90% foolish and keep that last 10%, at that point, there are factors outside of his control that make it impossible for him to be able to land a job, secure food, whatever else. So the foolishness is self-inflicted, but the famine is not. The famine is outside of his control, and he finds himself in a situation where the only job he can find is feeding pigs, which is not a great job for a Jewish boy, understandably. And I think that the heartbreak in that line, that every time I read it, no one gave him anything in verse 16. He was longing to be fed with the stuff the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So he went from sort of this entitled, brat, selfish, sinful, immoral, wasteful son to being now needy, broken, poor, shoeless. So he looks up in this situation and he says, you know what, this is stupid. (laughs) 
My father has servants that eat better than I do. I can go back, and it's sort of interesting if we had more time, and, and I, it is interesting if you do a Bible study. He prepares a little speech that he's going to tell his father, and when he shows up, he doesn't get all the way through the speech. And one interpretation of the way Jesus tells the story is the father kind of cuts him off, right? Uh, it's the graciousness of the father. So he kind of prepares this whole speech like, hey, you know, I know I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called the son, da, 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 da. And when he finally shows up, he doesn't even make it all the way through the speech for one reason or another in the way that Jesus tells the story. So while this young man leaves, pompous, prideful, sinful, he now embarks on a journey to return broken, poor, shoeless, homeless, and starving. It's worth a comment on, is this true repentance or not? Because the point of this younger son is, at this point, it seems like you could argue, well, it's circumstantial. He's not really repenting. He just needs the food. He just kind of goes back to saying, I want the good stuff again. But the key of that, it seems like some commentators say, is that line, he came to himself. And there's reason to believe when Luke uses that line, he came to himself, that there would have been an understanding that this was a, an appreciation for this was actually a repentant heart. So he's not just saying, oh, I'm going to replay the game Try to find a situation where I can get some good stuff again. That there is true repentance here. And it certainly is met by the Father as if it's true repentance. And that's really the point of the story after all. So what do we have? We have a son, rebellious, now broken, returning home. And now we can fix our gaze upon the Father and his response. And I, I don't know why I do this all the time. I like to think, how did the father not respond when he sees the son? First of all, the passage says very clearly, right, that the father sees the son coming while he was still a long way off. When he saw him, he felt compassion. He ran and embraced him and he kissed him. There's, there's a lot of beautiful things going on there. When I read passages like this, uh, particularly in this passage, in my mind, I have sort of a scene setting where I grew up. I grew up in western Oklahoma, which is very, very flat. So it makes all the sense in the world why you could see a sun coming from a long way off because you can see everyone coming from a long way off. But it's also very isolated and very remote, and there's not a lot of people around. And the more that I've... Uh, one commentator is actually on, on the Together for Gospel blog, did a series of posts about this story, and he really helped me to understand culturally, the villages would have been much more, much more close to what we experienced when we were in Ethiopia. We traveled, I think I told you that the last time I was here, we traveled to Ethiopia. My sons are adopted from Ethiopia. And we got to go to this village that you had to hike in. And there's one road in and all these, the, the, by the time we got there, there's 30 kids that had followed us in and out. And just, so every, that little village, everyone's in everybody's business, right? Everybody sees everything. And that's sort of probably a closer picture to both when the son left, right? Think of the, not just the pain of the father, but the cultural shame to the whole village. Everybody's in everybody's business. What's that son doing? Oh, I don't know. I think he just asked for his, his third of the inheritance. What's he going to do? I think he's going to give it to him. Why would he do that? I don't know. 
And they can imagine the villagers watching the son leave. Oh, shame on him. Shame on him. It's a very shame-based culture. So it makes it even more beautiful with this in mind, this sort of one road in, one road out, even if the village is largely even the servants and the, the other family members of the patriarch, but whoever else is there. When the son shows back up, it's the same thing, right? The father sees him coming from a long ways off. And at least one commentator pointed out, I think quite beautifully, that maybe the reason that Jesus told the story in such a way that the father ran to his son was to try to, Make sure that he set the tone for how we're going to receive this repentant son before all the other villagers could shame him and say, how dare you try to come back? A beautiful picture of the father running out to cover the son's shame, quite literally, before maybe the older brother or maybe the servants or maybe someone else could say, how dare you try to come back? You should not come back. You don't belong here. Get out of here. But the father's like, no, 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 no. That's not how we're going to meet this. It's a beautiful picture of the father's repentance or the father's grace, that is, to as a response to the son's coming home. Man, if I was the father in this story, wouldn't it be tempting, if you're the father in this story, to respond in a number of different ways? One of them might have been kind of a, oh, look who's coming back now, huh? Yeah, you didn't, you made some bad choices. Didn't save your money. Kind of acting like an idiot. Oh, now you come crawling back, right? So one part would be shaming. Like a father, it's so easy for us as humans, fathers, to sort of shame. I knew better. Or even, to, or even maybe to be sort of like, eh, I'm kind of glad you're back, but I, I don't really trust you fully. And I'm going to sort of like give you a quiz to see if you're really repentant. I'm going to give you a trial. We're going to give you a trial six-month halfway son, halfway servant status to see if you really are going to meet this. But no, this father's responses are totally ones of grace, totally ones of love, and totally wise. Which is an interesting, because the son we're about to read doesn't think his father is responding with wisdom to this brother. In our culture right now, uh, sitcoms love the trope of the bumbling father, right? So think of any sitcom or cartoon you can think of, and the father's usually the idiot, right? Something I read actually said, you put a dad in front of his kids, the dad gives the worst advice. You put a dad in front of a toaster, and he burns the house down, right? That's actually the narrative of American sitcom comedies over the last 30 years or so. And you don't see the bumbling dad trope in this father. You see graciousness, humility, love, and compassion. He's a good dad, kind, affectionate, gracious, He runs out. Every commentator loves to talk about the father running out. That in this day and age, the patriarch would not run for any number of reasons. It's it's not very royal to run. Not to mention the, the robes that they would wear, right? Like those very masculine, long prairie dresses, whatever you call those things, right? To run, they'd have to gird up their loins, is what it says in Hebrews. They have to like pull up their, their, their long robe in order to run. And so there's so much about the way Jesus tells the story that the original audience would have recognized this father is out acting out of character for what we think a father should act in order to respond to this 
rebellious son with graciousness. And here's some things that the culture, the original audience would have picked up on. When I read on my own, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. I just think, oh, that's nice. He's got a robe, shoes and a ring now. But the original audience would have immediately recognized, oh, the ring means he's fully a son. The shoes mean he's fully a son because servants didn't wear shoes. Only the the masters wore the shoes. And the robe was always reserved for a guest of honor. So it's not merely like, hey, dust off some clothes. Let's get him some new clothes. Let's get him. There's, There's something symbolic in all three of these that the original audience would have picked up on. This is a full restoration to sonship. That's exactly what the father says. He once was lost, but now he's found. He's no longer lost anymore. Now he's safe. He came back. So let's just pause and make some pastoral comments. Um, Some of you here may have at some point in your life been the younger son, rebellious, selfish, fighting against the authorities, potentially. Maybe someone is even here now that there's some part of your heart that's very rebellious, very angry, wanting to run, wanting to get rid of everything. And I just want to ask you, repent, come to your senses. The Father will respond to you in compassion. Some of us have in the past been that rebellious son. And now we come back into, into this community as well as, as well as to the gospel with our father. But because of our rebelliousness, we might even be tempted to kind of carry shame with us. And I just want to encourage you, if that's your story in any capacity, and in many ways that's all of our story, but to whatever extent that you feel the shame from that part of your life that you were the rebellious son, whether it was before you became a Christian or even after you became a Christian, I want to encourage you, embrace the gospel. The gospel is not there to remind you of your past shame. It's to remind you of the Father racing out, embracing you, accepting you back into being a son giving you the robe and the ring and throwing a party with a barbecue. Because that's what's happening, right? Kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a barbecue. In Oklahoma, where I come from, a barbecue is not burgers and hot dogs. You, you Californians, a barbecue is burgers and hot dogs. It's, if, if, if you come to my house for a barbecue, we're, we're not going to be doing burgers and hot dogs. There's going to be slow-cooked meat. And I'm from Oklahoma slash Texas, and barbecues usually is beef, frequently more than pig even. But anyway, so this is a Texas-style barbecue that the dad's throwing. Kill the fatted calf. Who doesn't love a party? Well, we see pretty quickly who doesn't love a party, and that's the older son. He's not too excited about the barbecue that's about to occur. Um, So let's read that. So I'm going to pick back up and now read the second lost son's account and starting in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. He refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. 
But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. He said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and to be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So the older brother, not nearly externally as rebellious, but we see as the barbecue and the party is occurring, his primary psychological state is anger. And what we see in this older son is that there's just as much selfishness, just as much rebelliousness in this son as the younger son, but it's just exposed differently. And really, the thing that's going on here is they both are really selfishly full of lust for the things that come from the father. The younger son took the fast game, right? Okay, dad, I wish you were dead. Just give it to me now so I can go party. The older son's just playing a different game for the exact same motive, isn't he? He's like, you know what? I'm going to chill here. I'm going to work every day. And I'm going to... I'm going to do my time so that I can get my reward. I can get that inheritance. So when the father's throwing a party, there's some part at least of this older son that feels like, wait, why are we wasting some of my inheritance on this brother of yours that came back? So while the younger son is outwardly rebellious, you see this inward rebelliousness of the older son while the younger son's selfishness is exposed by reckless living immoral living the older son's selfishness is exposed by his religious living right his i'm the rule followers and by golly i better get what's mine because i followed all the rules and before i pounce on him the way he deserves to be pounced on, I sort of want to pause and say, don't we all sort of relate to the older brother in this particular story? I think it was the Daryl Bach commentary, yeah, that said, in effect, the brother is complaining that immorality holds more merit with the father than faithfulness. Wow, that hits home, doesn't it? Father, I've been faithful. I've been here. I've been working. And somehow, my brother, when he's being a fool, him coming back, that receives a celebration that I've never been given for my faithfulness. And I don't, I don't like recklessness and foolishness, financial foolishness of any other kind. And so there's so much of me that can relate to this older brother and it doesn't surprise does it because where's the younger brother probably not here right the younger brother's off in vegas or wherever else but where's the older brother here (laughs) we often this is a part of us that we can struggle with this older brother attitude this self-righteous attitude in fact uh one guy I, I, i preached this at a church um And he came up and he said, 
I used to be the younger brother and very rebellious, and now I've turned into the older brother. And I said, that kind of that's how it works sometimes, right? It's like those of us who at some point in our life are the most rebellious can almost turn into being the most self-righteous and the least gracious. We had a, my daughter's a Biola student, my oldest daughter, and uh, we had a group of Biola students in our home. And uh, I can't remember how the subject matter even came up, but somehow they were talking about, the, the, I think it's a Netflix series on, Ted, on um, one of the murderers, oh, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, right? And apparently he's professed Jesus. And so there's, there's just conversation is, these mass murderers that kind of say that they, that they come to believe in Jesus, what do you think about that? And they were talking about that. And I remember thinking now as I was preparing the sermon, wow, what an older brother comment for us all to believe, right? Oh, he's, he's, not, really, he's not really a follower of Jesus. Look what he did. It's so self-righteous, right? If Jesus can wash away the sins of Jason Oaks and the selfishness of Jason Oaks. He can definitely wash away the sins of Jeffrey Dahmer. And for me to even wonder about it shows and reveals in my own heart an older brother attitude. Oh God, why would you save him? Look at all that I've done and I don't get what I should in my life. And that's where this anger comes from, from this older son. This anger is very telling, isn't it? It's almost as if he's telling the father, I don't want to be a part of the party. I'm angry. And the reason I'm angry is because I've been here and I deserve this party. It's very selfish. I've been here. In fact, the wording, right, is very strong. I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. It's very legalistic. I've checked every box. I got up every morning. I went into the field every time. But was he doing that out of love for the father? No, it's very revealed. No, he could care less what the father loves. So that's where you can really see the older brother in this person. This pause is here's the way to hit it, right? How is the father feeling today? The father's ecstatic. In many ways, it's the best day of the father's life. Why? Because one of his sons has come home. He was praying about him. He was nervous about him. And this, this father is ecstatic. He's having a party. It's one of the best days of his life. Is the older brother rejoicing with what the father rejoices? No. In fact, it seems like the older brother is saying, you're being a fool. Your response is foolish. I've been here. I've served you. I've never disobeyed you. And you're going to respond with this sort of lavish grace to this sinful brother of mine. Once again, I like thinking about, well, how does the father not respond? If I was the father, Lord help me, I would just say, you shut up and get in there and Eat some barbecue, right? Whatever. Just don't cause a scene. This is my day. Why are you spoiling my day, right? You can see the father could even respond in a selfish way. But the father's response is once again so gracious and kind. And in this sense, it's just full of wisdom. I love the father's response here. He doesn't apologize. It's one of my favorite things about the father's comment. He doesn't say, 
yeah, I know, I know, and I'm sorry you feel that way. And, and there is something for validating people's emotions. I'm not trying to, but in this case, what does the father say? Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. He's basically just chastising. You're wrong for being mad, son. It is right for us to be partying. That's the proper response. That's the appropriate response. One of the things that I I listened to a really nice sermon from Tim Keller on this exact passage, and he says, one of the things that can expose in us, whether we are the older son or not in our own attitudes, is do we respond with anger when we feel like that our obedience hasn't gotten from God what we expected that it should have gotten? That hit me. God, I have obeyed you. And whatever, my health isn't great. My children are disobeying. My financial situation isn't what I wanted to. God, that makes me so angry. I have obeyed you. I've never disobeyed you. And look what I get instead. Ah, It's very revealing of our own hearts. So while the younger son is externally disobedient, externally rebellious, the older brother is internally just as selfish and rebellious, and it comes out as anger. Now, there's another story. There's another son in this story, and it's this storyteller himself, the son of God, is telling the story. And it's actually very useful as we close to look at how the chapter began. In 15, at the very start, the tax collectors and sinners in 15.1 are all drawing near to him. And he would, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So the context of the stories are set up by three actual parables in a row, all about lostness. Jesus is being received by the sinners. The Pharisees are grumbling about this. And Jesus' response to their grumbling is to tell three stories. First was the lost sheep, then the lost coin, and the third one is the one we've just now looked at in detail, the prodigal or the lost son or the two lost sons, which places all of this into really easy to see why all three of these stories, there's a flow and a logic, and that is as we get to this second older son, the older son is responding in the exact same way that the Pharisees are responding, right? The Pharisees are grumbling. They're angry at Jesus is being received by the sinners. The older son is angry, grumbling at how the father is receiving this prodigal. It's not lost on me that in the process of the way Luke has told this story, we know that Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem, Luke 9.51. So even at this point, Jesus is even aware, I am going to die for the sins of my people. And these Pharisees are going to play some role in that. But I still have the mercy and the compassion to point out to those Pharisees, you're lost. You're not safe. If only you could be lost like the tax collectors were that are now turning to me. Now they're safe because of the gospel, but you're lost in a much more difficult and frightening sense. You're lost and you're blind that you're lost. The younger son, the tax collectors, the sinners are lost 
know that they're lost and they can come. And in that sense, Jesus is the anti-younger son. Jesus is not rebellious. Jesus is not out for himself. But he's also the anti-older son, right? Jesus is obeying and falling under the will of the Father. Not frustrated that the Father's not giving him what he wants. He doesn't feel like that he has to be frustrated and return with anger at following the will. No, his delight is to follow the will of the Father. And that's exactly what the older son misses. He has no delight in his Father's will. He's only worried about his own will. So may we respond with the power that's given to us through the Holy Spirit because of Jesus so we can resist any rebelliousness in us, whether it's younger son rebelliousness or older son rebelliousness. We can resist any self-righteousness that we find in ourselves and that we can trust the gospel. Let me pray to that end. Father, Holy Spirit, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for a beautiful story. Um, and I pray, God, that you would do a work in each of our hearts and our minds as we uh, seek to root out the selfishness, rebellious, self-justifying desires and simply return to the Father and receive his grace and give us the help to do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.